I do hope that, uh, just to reinforce what uh, Chris said earlier, if you're a member and have not turned in an officer nomination form, I hope that uh, you remember this is the last day to do that, or this week, if you will uh, prayerfully give that consideration and do that. Um, it's great to have Elliot and Carrie Everett back with us. <laughs> Nothing like being called out in a worship service. That'll get you awake. Um, served as a campus minister at Mercer for several years, and they've been at Mississippi State this past year. And I'm back here for a visit. Good to see you all. Back, Carrie sang that song. I remember you taught us that song uh, some years ago that we just uh, sang. Uh, let's turn to the book of Ruth uh, again. We come today to Ruth chapter 3. If you've not been with us, we've been uh, going through a brief series of sermons. It's on page 222 in these Bibles in the pews. We come to chapter 3. There are just four chapters, and so I'm uh, trying to cover a lot of ground in each sermon. When I hear the phrase, a good man is hard to find, I immediately think of the short story by Flannery O'Connor. And one of the highlights on YouTube is watching her read that story, if you've not seen that. Um, One of the commentaries I'm using in these sermon preparations entitled, This Chapter, A Good Man is Hard to Find. Uh, This is the uh, third sermon on the series of Ruth. Let me give you a little background before I read chapter 3. As I mentioned, Ruth takes place during the period of the judges. That was that 400-year period before Israel had kings that that is summarized in the last chapter of the book of Judges, which comes right before Ruth, when it said at that time there was no king in Israel Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. It was not a good time. It was a, uh, uh, it was a very difficult time for God's people. There was a lot of rebellion. There was punishment for that rebellion, typically through enemy, enemy troops and so forth, and them crying out for God's deliverance. And we see that cycle being repeated some seven times over, that, over the period of, the, of Judges. We think this book of Ruth took place, what's recorded here, took place about the time of Judges chapter 6. It was about 3,000 years ago, and yet it's very pertinent to us because we see how God takes some tragic events that I'm going to summarize for you again from chapter 1, and he causes good to come out of that. And we will see by the end of the book that even the lineage of the Lord Jesus Christ goes back to what happened here in the book of Ruth. In chapter 1 of Ruth, we met a man named Elimelech. He's married to a woman named Naomi. They live in Bethlehem, the very city where Jesus would be born later. They're Israelites. They're living among God's people, and yet there's a famine. It seems to be a regional famine. So they leave Bethlehem to go to the country of Moab, which is somewhat southwest. They go across the or around the Dead Sea. They go to Moab. Um, and there, he says, let's sojourn there, as though it's supposed to be temporary, but it seems to become permanent. They, they stay there and because there's food. Uh, while they are there, their two sons marry Moabite women. Now, the Moabites worshipped another god, and they made human sacrifice to that other god. They, they were pagans in the eyes of the Israelites. They did not worship Yahweh. Then tragically, Elimelech dies, leaving Naomi a widow. And then the two sons die, leaving their wives as widows. So by the end of chapter 1, 
or toward the middle of chapter 1, you have three widows. And they do not have what gave a woman status in those days. Husbands and children. So these, the two daughters-in-law say to Naomi, we're going to stay with you. And Naomi has decided to go back to Bethlehem because she's heard that now there's food there. And most of the latter part of chapter 1 is her reasons why they should not do this. Her arguments to tell them to stay in Moab, to go back to their families, their, their parents, and, and to stay there among their own people. And, and, essentially, and she essentially says, there's nothing in your future. If you go with me, there's no more husbands, there's no hope, there's nothing. And basically, she says, look what God has done to me, and do you want to you be part of this? You don't. Go home. One daughter-in-law does that. She loves Naomi, but her kisses her goodbye. But the other daughter-in-law, Ruth, uh, will not be deterred. And she says, no, where you go, I will go. Where you live, I will live. And where you die, I will stay. She's committed for life. And Naomi sees that she's not going to change her mind, so she doesn't say any more. They return. But the end of chapter 1, the very last verse, there's a glimmer of hope because it says that the barley, the harvest, the barley harvest was just, was just about to begin in Bethlehem. They go back. Now we come to chapter 2. Chapter 2 primarily is about one man, Boaz. We meet Boaz. Um, and it tells a story that they've been back in Bethlehem. Now the harvest time is upon them. It's a seven-week period beginning in late April when the harvest is ready to be brought in. And so Ruth tells Naomi, her mother-in-law, I'm going to glean in a field. And the, the writer of Ruth, we don't know who that was, puts it, it just so happened that she ends up in a field that's owned by this man named Boaz. Boaz happens to come through that day, that particular field, and he asks his, his foreman, his lead servant, whose woman, whose woman is that foreigner? Who does she belong to? Uh, a servant to someone. And he says apparently something that's well known now in the area around Bethlehem. Oh, that's the foreigner, the daughter-in-law of Naomi who came back with her, which was viewed with great respect. And Boaz then makes a point to be very generous to her, saying, do not go to off by yourself uh, when you're gathering wheat, but stay here near my workers, drink the water they have drawn, stay near them so as not to be assaulted, so nothing bad will happen to you, drink the water that they have drawn from the wells, and here, sit down and eat with all of us until you're full, and then at the end of the day, he... He not only praises her, but he prays for her and says, may you find refuge under the wings of the Lord. That was an Old Testament analogy. We find it with Moses. We find it in the Psalms where the picture is God as an eagle and he stretches his wings over those um, eaglets beneath him for protection. And so they use that to say, may you find your refuge in God. He also gives her a whole big bag of grain to take back to Naomi. She goes back and tells Naomi what's happened. Now Naomi has a plan, and that's what we come to in chapter 3. It's about seven weeks later because the harvest now is finished. So chapter 2 probably happened at the end of April. Now it's early June, and we find 
this taking place. Hear God's word. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative, with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, All that you say I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good. Let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, Let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, Bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it out. She held it, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city, and when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest but will settle the matter tomorrow. Let's pray together. Father, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. In Jesus' name, amen. You could summarize chapter 3 by saying that this is Naomi's plan to get Boaz to marry Ruth. And it, 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 it assumes two customs that are real strange to us. And I've explained one in the past, but I'll explain them both now. And the first is called the levirate law. It comes from a Latin word meaning husband's brother. To understand this, you have to go back or to Genesis 38 or Deuteronomy 25. And it was a custom where in the Old Testament, it was vital that a man's family name was preserved. And therefore, if he died without an heir, without an heir, then steps were to be taken that he had an heir who could carry on his name and inherit his property. So it was customary and required by law, by God's law, that the widow of the deceased man be married to one of her husband's relatives. 
preferably a brother, but not necessarily a brother. And then the first son of that marriage, when, if she married his brother or other relative, the first son of that marriage would then be the heir to the deceased man. You still with me? This is one crazy chapter, okay? You've got to be patient with me. I mean, it really is. This may be one of the weirdest chapters in the Bible, in my opinion. And with that introduction, I keep going. Since Elimelech and Naomi's sons have all died, Elimelech had no heirs. Now only Ruth held out any possibility that Elimelech might have heirs. But Ruth was only his daughter-in-law. And she had no duty, no responsibility to raise children to keep alive Elimelech's name. Boaz recognized the generosity of Ruth toward Elimelech. And that's one reason he praises her so much. She did not have to do this. She did not have to come back to Bethlehem with Naomi, with her mother-in-law. Obviously, that was a very sacrificial thing that she did. And so in verse 10, when he wakes up and exclaims, who is this, and so forth, and, and she tells him, and he says, this kindness is greater than that which she showed earlier. This is what he's referring to, that she showed kindness by coming back. All right, that's the first custom. The liberate law to perpetuate a man's name. The second custom involved what was called a kinsman redeemer or goel, G-O-E-L, which means to recover or to redeem. Now, this person is mentioned in Leviticus chapter 25, which says, if your brother becomes poor and sells part of his property, then his nearest redeemer shall come and redeem what his brother has sold. So this is saying that here is brother number one, and he has to sell off everything for one reason or another. He, he ends up selling his land, selling his, his home, and wives were property. That's the way it was. The kinsman redeemer could, was to come and purchase that back to get it, to, to pay the debt that was owed. So that's when you hear this term, you are a redeemer. That's what it's talking about, is this custom of the kinsman redeemer or the goel. So there's the liberate law about the heirs of the, the deceased man. There's the kinsman redeemer who is to buy back the property of his brother. Okay, now, with that background, let's look at the text for just a few minutes. As I mentioned, seven, at least seven weeks have passed or so. The harvest uh, is now being brought in. So the, the hard work of gathering the harvest is finished, and now it's time to winnow the barley at the threshing floor. Archaeologists tell us that threshing floors were usually situated outside the city, outside the gate of the, the city, but close enough so that once they had the grain, they could easily transport it back into the city. But they wanted it far enough from the walls of the city so that they could catch any breezes or any wind that might be in the air. And the reason for that is that harvested grain was carted to the threshing floor, which was stone, and then these stalks were laid out 
and they were trampled under the hooves of animals or crushed under cartwheels or what were called threshing sledges. And it removed the husk from the kernels. And the next step was winnowing, where the workers would take something like a pitchfork or a shovel and they would throw, throw it up into the air and then the breeze would blow the straw and the chaff away and the grain, the barley grain, would drop to the ground. So it, it took a while to do this and it was somewhat 20, well, during the daylight hours, but they stayed there 24-7. They didn't want anybody stealing their grain. That's, that's how Naomi knew that Boaz would be spending the night there. The owner particularly was going to watch over what he had worked so long that now has the result of that. Verse 3, Naomi tells Ruth to clean herself up. Widows dressed a certain way, showing they were widows. And now she's saying, okay, I want you to prepare yourself she is going to change that appearance and she's going to clean herself up and and Naomi gives her this plan you're going to wait on Boaz you're going to wait until they're all they're all finished in the meantime you remain anonymous with the veil or whatever would keep those from recognizing you and you notice where he goes to to lie down to go to sleep and then go verse four and uncover his feet and lie down at his feet and Naomi then says at that point he will tell you what to do now, that's Naomi's plan, and it's one strange plan. If you read this and don't think, what is going on here, go back and read it again. I mean, there were a hundred things that could go wrong. Ruth could be assaulted by the other workers. Uh, a foreign woman alone out at night around places, threshing, threshing stones, those areas were known of places for drunkenness and immorality. She could be taken advantage of by Boaz. She could be rebuffed by Boaz. By all accounts, it was a risky maneuver. But the author of the book does not tell us why Naomi chose this strategy to try to win Boaz for Ruth. Just where did Ruth lie down? The language is not clear. They teach us just enough Hebrew and Greek in seminary to be dangerous. But I can tell you those that are experts in these areas will say even in the original language, the Hebrew, it's not precise. And it, it seems to be intentionally vague. One author I read said that, well, she uncovered his feet. What happens if you're sleeping on a cool night and your feet are uncovered? It's going to wake you up eventually. When my mother wanted me up when I was a child and on a, you know, nothing like a warm bed on a cold morning. I mean, that's a tough combination to break. What do you think she'd do? She'd pull the covers off. That'll get you up. But anyway, so she's at his feet. And then he uh, awakens. He's startled. It tells us in verse 8. He's startled because there's a woman there and he says, who are you? Verse 7. Now she goes off script. She changes and does something different than Naomi had said. Naomi just said, he'll tell you what to do. But now Ruth asserts herself and says, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Now that doesn't make a lot of sense to us. She's using that same analogy from the prayer that he had prayed for her about the wings to, to find refuge under God's wings. But now she's saying, I want to find refuge under your wings uh, you are a redeemer. This, I am told, is a marriage proposal. 
It was her way of saying, you are the redeemer. You are the one who can redeem our inheritance and our family name from being lost. I want you to fill that role. I want to be your wife. In John Piper's book, A Bitter and Sweet, or Sweet and Bitter Providence, about the book of Ruth, he writes about this very moment. I picture an immense silence for a moment while Boaz lets himself believe that this magnificent woman had really understood and had so profoundly and sensitively understood that this middle-aged man's interest in a young widow whom he discreetly calls my daughter, he's uncertain whether her heart might be going after the younger men, communicating with a subtle word picture that he wants to be God's wings for her. Then this young widow gradually reads between the lines and finally risks an interpretation by coming in the middle of the night to take refuge under the wings of his garment. That is powerful stuff, so writes John Piper. With the Leverate marriage, the marriage was made official by being consummated, which could have happened right then and there. If Boaz had wanted to take her that would have been, we're married now. There was no ceremony. There was no big wedding that you think of today. But we see his integrity. In fact, that's what it seems to be that Naomi thinks is going to happen. That by the time Ruth returns the next day, that, that she and Boaz will be married. But as it happens, we see that this Boaz is truly a man of integrity. And here alone with her in the middle of the night, he knows this is not the right thing to do. Why? Because there's a closer relative, another redeemer. And he cannot, he must defer to that man's decision. So he says in effect to her in verses 11 through 13, according to custom, Ruth, there is another one who has prior claim to you. I won't be able to proceed with marriage until all things are settled with him. So he he has self-control for the purpose of righteousness. He does not touch her. Can you imagine if this was an American movie? When's the last time we saw any self-control in a situation like this? For what was right, not out of fear that they were going to get caught or, you know, somebody might find out. He did it because it was right. What, who was it that said character is who you are when you're alone? Was that you, Elliot? Did you say that? I mean, I mean it's, it was either Mark Twain or... Some, I mean, character is who you are when you're alone. And, and we see his character comes out. So verse 14, she lays at his feet until early morning, gets up before the sun comes up so no one can see. And uh, he, he says, no, as you go back to Naomi, take this. He gives her these six measures of barley. And that's estimated to be about 80 pounds. You ever carried 80 pounds? I carried a 70-pound backpack on a backpacking trip once, and that's heavy. It was heavy for me, and that was many years ago. Uh, all right, this is 80 pounds. Yeah, now, somebody asked me, how do you know it's 80 pounds? I said, well, they said, oh, those that knew all the specifics said it's between 60 and 100, so I'm going with 80. Why do I say that? I think if you think about Ruth, you may have in your mind this beauty queen, this little petite person that was real attractive, 
hey, this is a woman who's been out gathering grain in the fields every day, in the heat, and now she's 80 pounds or however she carried it back to Naomi. This is no small, petite, real weak person. This woman had some meat on her, okay? I mean, she was, can you say that here? That, I'm talking like an Alabama person right now. All right. <laughs> so when she goes back, Naomi in verse 16 said, How did you fare, my daughter? <laughs> That's getting to the, are you married or are you not? What happened? She's not married yet, but Naomi says, Today's going to bring, today's going to be an interesting day. You know, sun up now, so she knew that Boaz was going to take care of business. Well, what are we to make of this chapter? When you come to the Bible, obviously there are various types of literature. There's historical narrative, like this, there's poetry, there's proverb, there's uh, parable. There's what we call didactic or teaching doctrinal section like the book of Romans or the book of Ephesians, uh, among other types of literature. There's a whole variety of literature, and, and we have to use different rules for interpreting different types of literature. You don't interpret poetry like from the Psalms the way you would interpret the book of Romans because it's using poetic language. When you come to narrative stories, especially in the Old Testament, that are just told and not explained, application can be somewhat dangerous. Because this passage does not shout out particular application. Now, there's, there's several principles we can draw from it that are good, but it's not as though, hey, is this a chapter on how to find a man? Go uncover his feet? and lay down there and sleep? I mean, uh, let's return to Old Testament laws? What is this? Well, here's how I found some various applications in John Piper's book. He, he majored on the, the self-control amidst sexual temptation and made all sorts of application for people today to stand for righteousness. All right? Carolyn James, she talked about women taking the initiative in a patriarchal society that Naomi and Ruth, in a sense, were stepping out of their roles given the society at that time, even especially by Ruth essentially saying, I want you to marry me, rather than being passive and waiting for him to initiate it. One writer I read talked about how this move by Naomi and Ruth involved great risk, that we should be willing to take risk in our obedience to God. Well, that's true. I... And maybe, and you can use this as an example, but it's not like the passage says this is a necessary application. So I think I'll throw my lot in with them, and I'm going to tell you something I came away from. Was it right for Boaz to marry a foreigner? And I'm raising the question of race. In chapter 1, it could be argued that when her husband died that it had been wrong for him to marry Ruth because she was a Moabitess. In fact, when Naomi tries to talk her and the other daughter-in-law to going back, she says, go back to your people and your gods. 
It's almost as though she's saying, return to what you truly believe. By the fact that Ruth doesn't want to do that, and the fact that she refers to God as Yahweh, the Lord, it gives the indication that she has come to faith, that she is a believer in Yahweh. And that's one of the reasons she wants to go with Naomi to Bethlehem. I think in chapter 2, and when she speaks to, to Boaz and refers to the Lord again, that there's indication, strong indication, that she now is a believer. So the principle we have in the Old Testament about marriage, you may say, weren't Jews just to marry Jews and never marry foreigners? I can't say that. Foreigners. Whoever identified with the people of God was given full status as an Israelite. You did not have to be born a Jew to become an Israelite if you believed and you were baptized into that. That's what they use baptism for. The prohibitions against marriage with someone from another culture were intended to teach that God did not want his people to marry outside the people of God. It was not a racial issue. It was not that, quote, to keep the race pure, to keep the bloodline pure of the Jews. That's a non-issue. The people of God were to marry only from others from among the people of God. In other words, they were to marry those who were in the faith. It, it didn't matter what race or nationality. So if Ruth now, as I believe, and what I think the passage is pretty clear, has come to trust in Yahweh, in the Lord of Israel, then it's perfectly legitimate for the kinsman redeemer to marry her and not be violating the, the prohibition like where God said, you shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. They were not to marry people who worshipped other religions. So we see that carried over into the New Testament, and it uses the phrase frequently, we are to marry in the Lord. Believers should marry other believers. Now, in the Westminster, our Westminster Confession of Faith that we hold to as a denomination uh, that we subscribe to, it has a chapter on marriage and divorce. And I won't read it all to you, and this is not Scripture. It doesn't have the authority of Scripture, but it's a perfect, we think, a very good summary of what the Bible teaches on this subject. And it says, and I'm going to take some excerpts here, in paragraph 1, marriage is to be between one man and one woman. Neither is it lawful for any man to have more than one wife, nor for any woman to have more than one husband at the same time. It is lawful for all sorts of people to marry who are able with judgment to give their consent. Yet it is the duty of Christians to marry only in the Lord. So the only major prohibition in the Bible for a Christian in marriage is we are to marry another believer. Prohibition, don't, marry, don't knowingly marry an unbeliever if you're a Christian. It says nothing about race. It says nothing about nationality. Now, there are practical issues that we all have to work through and in our culture since we don't have arranged marriages which has been the majority position most of history and is still in many parts of the world where marriages are arranged for advantageous unions economically or politically or for a variety of reasons uh, i was reading where one fellow said in his office he's a christian author he went in and he had a friend from japan 
and the man was looking at a folder, and he said, what are you looking at? And he said, well, I'm, I'm looking at this resume, this documents on a woman that my parents have arranged for me to marry. I've never met her, but I'm reading about her right here. And the, the guy I'm referring to wanted to kind of laugh like, you're, out, you're crazy, right? You're going to do that with a complete stranger? But to the man sitting at the desk, it made perfect sense. This is just the way that they did such things. So the prohibition is against marrying an unbeliever. They're practical issues. And anyone who is married cross-culturally, especially someone who has another native tongue or grew up in another country and a completely different from uh, the Western culture like ours, will tell you it's extremely difficult. So we can talk about pros and cons and, and uh, what, will this make your life difficult? Will this, but as far as it being sinful, there's nothing about that in the Bible. Now, having two African-American grandchildren, I think a lot about this. And I've had to think a lot about it. So when I read this story, one of the first things is, how is it legitimate for him to marry this foreign woman? Okay, I'm going to switch gears and conclude this thing, all right? I'm going to leave you hanging there and slam the brakes on right here. I thank God for the older godly women that he has put in my life ever since I became a Christian. I, I've been blessed through churches I grew up in, through being involved with student ministries and campus ministries to where other men's older people's wives and others have, have had input with me. And often I realized in some cases that knew me well, and this, I mean, Barbara knows far beyond, far better than I know myself, but even some of these other women would see things and say, you need, you really need to work on this area. You need to work on decisiveness. You need to commit yourself. And they were saying it because they knew me and they loved me and they were right. And, and they were godly women who had walked with Christ longer than I had. Well, I read a story uh, recently uh, that it's a humorous story I hope that that tells about a similar example it was written by Maeve Benchy uh, if uh, hopefully you've read any of her novels or short stories she was from Ireland uh, Maeve Benchy was an Irish novelist for many years she died a number of years ago but uh, she was brilliant and one of her short stories in one of her collections had to do with a couple who's engaged and it's the night before their wedding big wedding uh, in England, and they, they have uh, all the attendants and, and all the family has, has traveled now to this city, and the, the music's all selected, the, the, the rehearsal's taken place, the, the flowers have now arrived, and all the, it's all ready, the bride is so happy, everything has just gone perfectly, and now she's saying, oh, now all I need to do is get a good night's sleep, and tomorrow's the wedding and all these arrangements to be finished. And lo and behold, she finds herself sitting across from her fiancé who's ashen-faced and fumbling for words, saying, I cannot go through with this. I cannot do this. And she's looking at him, stunned, and he says, I, I can't go forward. I can't go forward. We we've got to call this off. And she says, I tell you what, here's what we'll do. Rather than you backing out, tomorrow at the wedding, I'll back out. So the least you can do for me is let me be the one 
who backs out rather than you. And he was so impressed with the way she's receiving it that he goes, that he says, that, that's fine. Yeah, that'll be fine. She said, okay, tomorrow I'll be the one that, that I, will not, I will not show up. So the next day, everyone's gathered. The sanctuary, the chapel is full. The, you know, the attendants have all come down, and the, the groom and his best man and the pastor are all standing in the front, and they're facing, and the groom, of course, is expecting the doors to open and no one be standing there. The doors open up, and there's the bride with her father. They walk down the aisle. The wedding takes place. And on the honeymoon, this is the first time they get to talk about it, in a subtle, not so subtle way, she was saying to him, I know you better than you know you. And you were getting married. <laughs> and that was going to happen. We're going to find that, that, that this is a quirky plan that's all part of the coming of Jesus Christ. Of this Moabite woman who experiences widowhood and in our next sermon, Lord willing, we'll look at chapter 4 and see exactly what happens. Let's pray together. Father, we see all over this the hands of your providence. Uh, your providential work in each life here, even as you are working in our lives, uh, sometimes through pain, sometimes through tragic events. Uh, uh, but other times in a single day, we see things turn around completely. And so we pray that we would trust you. We thank you for the Lord Jesus, the ultimate redeemer, the ultimate goel, who paid the price for our sin. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.